0: Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 76. We start today on our story of the greatest naval battle of the war. It was an action that took place on the North Sea on May the 30th and into the next morning. It involved 150 British ships and 100 German vessels. It would be both the biggest and the last purely surface encounter of primary fleets in naval history. Its result would be somewhat ambiguous, with discussions even to this day on who was in fact the winner. The battle would be called Jutland by the British and Skagerrak by the Germans. Why this particular fleet action occurred at such scale is part of the story. It's not like both sides decided to meet up for a good old fashioned slugfest in the middle of the ocean. It just sort of happened that way. On the British side, they had the advantage of more ships bigger ships, but in some cases, as will be seen, not the best ships. On the German side, the fact that Jutland even happened was a bit of a surprise. They were always going to be the numerically inferior fleet, unless they got really lucky. However, the German run of successes in late 1915 and early 1916 had built up their confidence and convinced them maybe they could beat the Grand Fleet, or at least take a good stab at Beatty and his battlecruisers. Both sides also just wanted some action, at least as far as the men on the ships were concerned. The Germans, after their long idleness after Dogger Bank in 1915, and the British as well, who did not have a good way to cause an action, and instead had to wait for the Germans to do something. With the beginning of 1916, both sides were becoming more bold in their actions, after almost a year of inactivity. For the Battle of Jutland, there would be five distinct phases, and this is how you see it broken up in most texts. The first would be the encounter of the battle cruisers under the command of Beattie and Hipper, which had already happened several times during the war. These two groups would move to the south, with the Germans leading the British into the waiting arms of the full German fleet. Once Beattie discovered that he was being led into a trap, he would then turn around to the north, and the hunter would become the hunted in a run to the north. This would then lead the Germans into the British Grand Fleet, steaming south under the command of Jellicoe. The main battle fleets would then finally clash, and then the Germans would turn away, only to then turn back again into the British guns for whatever reason, and we'll discuss that here in a little bit. Finally, the Germans would turn away again and run for home, through the night, as the destroyers of both sides clashed in the darkness. These five phases will be covered over the next several episodes of the podcast, but today we will set the stage. First, we will discuss the actions of early 1916, as the German Navy grew more and more bold in their actions. Then we will look at the German and British situations before the battle, since it's been over six months since we've discussed any naval actions. This will be a lengthy series of episodes, so settle in, but unfortunately it will be the last great naval battle of the war. After the events of Dogger Bank, when the Germans had received the short end of the stick in the battlecruiser engagement, the High Seas fleet had spent most of its time in port or close to port, behind their protective minefields. There were often discussions about operations, some out into the North Sea, even some to assist in land-based objectives like taking over Denmark or invading Norway, or other similar operations, some of which would be revived by the German High Command in World War II. However, none of these plans were put into play, due to the risk of Royal Navy involvement. During this time, a reserved posture was kept at all levels of high command of the German Navy. This included the commander of the High Seas Fleet, Admiral Hugo von Pohl. Right after the beginning of 1916, things began to change, and it started with Pohl. He had to be removed from his flagship because of liver cancer, and he would die on February the 23rd. During his stint as commander, there had been eleven months of little action for the German navy. Tirpitz was becoming impatient. After all the work he had put into building the German fleet, it was hard to watch it sit in port and rust. Up until the change in command, the Kaiser had always been cautious with his ships, and resisted any plans to give them a more active role in the war. However, when von Pohl's replacement took command, this would start to change, as he was far more aggressive. Admiral Reinhard Scheer was 53 years old in 1916, and had a 38-year career in the German Navy behind him, which he had entered at the age of 15. He had risen through the ranks, apparently mostly on merit, which was somewhat unique at this period of history. He had served before the war in the Navy office torpedo section, and he was known for his work on a textbook for destroyer torpedo tactics. I mention this fact because it would turn out to be important during the Battle of Jutland, both his proclivity for destroyer-launched torpedoes and the German Navy's skill in their use. When the war started, Scheer had been given command of the 3rd Battle Squadron, which contained some of the most powerful ships in the entire German fleet. He was well-liked by his subordinates as well. His flag lieutenant at Jutland would say that, quote, "...there were many stories of his exploits as a young lieutenant." His old friends had given him the odd nickname Bobscheiss, or Shooting Bob, on account of his likeness to the f- his fox terrier, which he was fond of provoking to bite his friend's trousers. End quote. chief of staff, Captain Adolf von Trotha, would say, quote, he was a commander of instinct and instant decision, who liked to have all options presented to him, and then as often as not chose a course of action no one had previously considered. In action, he was absolutely cool and clear. Jutland showed his great gifts, and a man like that must be allowed to drive his subordinates mad. Quote. Scheer's view on how the German navy should be used is perhaps best explained by von Trotha's quote about it, in which he wrote that Scheer had, quote, "...no faith in a fleet which has been brought through the war intact. We are at present fighting for our existence." In this life-and-death struggle, I cannot understand how anyone can think of allowing any weapon which could be used against the enemy to rest in its sheath. When Shear took over command, he would release a work titled, quote, Guiding Principles of Sea Warfare in the North Sea. And in this, he would lay out his guiding principles for all of his future actions. Now here is Robert K. Massey from his book Castles of Steel, which is excellent, with a summary. The first principle was acceptance of the continuing fact that the unfavorable ratio of number of ships ruled out a decisive all-out battle with the Grand Fleet. The second was that within this framework, constant pressure should be exerted on the British fleet to force it to send out some of its forces to respond to German attacks. The third was that in these offensive operations, the German Navy should use every weapon available. Airship and submarine operations were to be combined with the operations by the High Seas Fleet in deep offensive thrusts into the North Sea. End quote. Essentially, Scheer was determined to use the German fleet in some kind of offensive capacity, and he could even make an argument that it might be successful. The first argument would have been that the German ships were qualitatively, if not quantitatively, superior to the British. And this was an argument that he had been proved right with during previous battles. Scheer was even able to talk the Kaiser into believing that his plan was the right one, eventually getting the Kaiser to publicly approve the planned offensive operations. So one of the sources I used for these episodes was a pretty biased work, entitled The Battle of Jutland by Holloway H. Frost, which was apparently written in, like, the 30s. Which, if you're wondering, is is not what I would suggest for first-time readers, due to its writing style and some of its dubious conclusions, but it still has some fun lines in it, like this one, and I'll be quoting other things from this work uh, in the future. Quote, While Scheer's decision to use the high seas fleet as a whole for offensive operations involved risk out of all proportion to the results he might reasonably hope to gain, we nevertheless heartily approve of his bold resolve. End quote. The Battle of Jutland did not just happen on the first time that the German fleet left the Jade, but instead it was just one of several sorties out into the North Sea in early 1916. The general plan of these actions was that Hipper would be sailing out ahead while Scheer followed behind with all of the German High Seas fleet. Some of these raids would be hindered by weather, like the planned raid against the British coast on March the 5th. After this raid, Hipper was beginning to show signs of extreme exhaustion. He was barely able to sleep and was often wakened by the slightest of noises. On March 26th, he was forced to apply for sick leave. Scheer would visit Hipper and soon after approve his request. There is some evidence that around this time, uh, Shear was somewhat jealous of Hipper's success. You have to remember that Hipper had been the real star of the first two years of the naval war, and even with his loss of one of the old battle cruisers at Dogger Bank— he was still considered one of Germany's best leaders at sea. This possible jealousy does not seem to have affected events, though. Hipper would take five weeks off and would return on May the 13th, just in time for the action at Jutland, when he would put his flag on the newly commissioned battlecruiser, the Lutzow. During the time that he was gone, the Germans had launched a raid against Lowestoft and had shelled the town from offshore for a short time before retreating to the high seas fleet. The high seas fleet then retreated back to port, out of fear that the Grand Fleet was on its way. While this seems like a pointless raid, or at least one that does not bear too much of a mention, it would also have effects on Jutland, because after the raid, the British government demanded that a reasonably strong force be sent to the Thames to give better protection to the southern British coastline. It was thought that this was necessary to reassure the British people living on the coast that they would be safe in the future this force would end up including the HMS Dreadnought. And because of this, the ship that had given an entire generation of warships its name would miss the most important battle for those ships in history. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. So come give us a listen, we'd love to have you. Go to ExplorersPodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. After the raids, Sheer was not satisfied with dropping a few shells on the British coast anymore, and he started to think bigger. His goal was to get the battlecruisers in a position where he could ambush Beatty without undue risk to his own ships. He also had always liked the idea of trying to use submarines to ambush the British fleet, either on their way to battle or on their way back. In early 1916, he had this option, because the submarines were no longer being used for unrestricted submarine warfare, which left some boats available. The key was to find something that would draw the British out to a predictable location at a predictable time. He decided on sending Hipper and his battlecruisers to bombard the town of Sunderland, near Newcastle upon Tyne. This would be very close to where Beattie called home in the Firth of Forth, and the challenge was sure to bring the British ships out to sea. However, before the British ships reached Open Sea, they would have to move through the planned submarine ambush, and then straight into the entire high seas fleet when they were expecting just Hipper. A concern in any of these operations was the location of the Grand Fleet, and to counter this threat, Scheer planned to use zeppelins to scout. The problem with this plan was that Scheer did not know about Room 40 and the British ability to quickly vector their ships onto the Germans. He was planning to have over six hours with Beattie before Jellicoe arrived, more than enough time to deal with the battle cruisers and escape. This would simply never happen with the British ability to gather intelligence, But it would not end up mattering, uh, because the plan would never be put into action. Because it was discovered uh, shortly before the beginning that some of the newest German ships of the Koenig-class had developed problems with their condensers. These Koenig-class dreadnoughts were an essential group of ships for the high seas fleet, so the operation had to be delayed until May the 23rd to allow for repairs. The Seidlitz was also under repair at this time, after hitting a mine on April the 24th and it was also thought to be ready for sea by the 23rd. All of the planning for the future operations was pushed back a bit, and it was now based around the date of the 23rd of May. But unfortunately, there was a delay in the repairs that would mean that the ships would not be prepared until the 28th of May. Then there was a spat of bad weather, and again the operation had to be delayed, this time until the 30th. These delays were highly regrettable, but would not seem like a huge problem. Except for the fact that on May the 17th, while, you know, they were still planning on May the 23rd, the kickoff date, the U-boats had been dispatched and would be on position on May the 23rd. Now, once the subs left the German coastline, the clock was ticking on the operation, because they only had enough fuel to be on station until the 30th, and they would then have to return to Germany to reload and refit. They had been ordered to stay on location as long as possible, but they were also ordered to only use wireless under urgent circumstances. Because of all of this, it was mostly impossible to give them any information, or to get any information from them. But with the timer on the operation, and the ship still under repair, and finally the weather against him, Scheer was forced to come up with an alternate plan. Since it was thought essential to have zeppelins for scouting when near the British coast, the concern was the Grand Fleet would find a way to get around behind the Germans, blocking their retreat, not necessarily just like charging right into them, but instead making sure they couldn't get back to Germany. So with the Zeppelins grounded by the weather, the plan now had to take place further away from the coast, and Scheer settled on an area to the east, near the Skagorak. The hope was that Hipper, in this location, would pose enough of a threat to British shipping that and Jellicoe would be pulled to sea. The risk of a confrontation with the Grand Fleet was deemed to be acceptable, because it would take place so close to Germany, the retreat lines were so short. So at 3 p.m. on May the 30th, Scheer decided to put his plan into motion, and at 1 a.m. on May the 31st, the high seas fleet would weigh anchor and make their way out to sea. Scheer would have with him the most powerful fleet in German history. With eighteen battleships, five battle cruisers, seven second-line battleships, fourteen light cruisers, and seventy-six destroyers. Since the beginning of the war, the British had been continuously building new ships, and by April nineteen sixteen, they had added thirteen battleships or Brit- battle cruisers. The British were not just building ships with big guns either. They also had another ship that was pretty close to the first of its kind, the Campania. This had been an 18,000 ton passenger liner before the war, but now it was being turned into an aircraft carrier. Since 1914, Jellicoe had been asking for an aircraft carrier for aerial scouting, but also to try and hinder the German Zeppelins. Without some sort of aircraft carrier, the British did not really have any way to counter the Zeppelins, which could just hover over the fleets for long periods of time reporting all of their movements. must have made them feel very exposed. The Campania, even though it was quite large, was not large enough to handle the heavier British scouting craft, but it could launch smaller, lighter fighters from a flight deck, but it also had to maintain a large hangar for seaplanes in the rear. Regardless of this new toy that the Royal Navy now possessed, it still had a problem. It it had a disease, and it was called extreme boredom. The vast majority of the Royal Navy had been stuck in scap flow since the war started. During all of this time, they had to be supplied, which was no small task, since while Scapa Flow was a safe location for ships, there was no connection via land to the harbor, so everything had to be brought in via other ships. And it was from these ships that everything was brought to keep the ships afloat and the men on board alive. This meant fuel, ammunition, and food. Most importantly, food. To the tune of 300 tons of meat, 800 tons of potatoes, and 6,000 bags of flour, along with a massive amount of other commodities every month. Besides just supplying the fleet, another problem came when trying to find something for the men to do, beyond the endless routine of training aboard the ships. Because of the isolated location, the men were never given leave unless a ship was going south for repairs. And with being stuck in a deserted area of Scotland, the men became pretty good at finding ways to entertain themselves. First of all, the islands around the shore were quickly populated with various activities like football grounds, tennis courts, and even a full 18-hole golf course. Jellicoe also made a specific request to the Admiralty that schoolmasters be dispatched from the naval schools so that the men could be educated while off-duty, which many took advantage of. One of the biggest reasons that all of the activities were encouraged by officers was to try and maintain some form of physical fitness, important when the men could be sent into battle at any time. The officers were big on physical fitness, both for their men and for themselves, and this went straight up to the top to Jellicoe. But he was still having some health problems by 1916. In September 1915, he was suffering from rheumatism and neuralgia, But he stayed with the fleet as much as possible, and this created a bond between him and the men under his command, and he was well-loved by almost all of the sailors. During my research, I read several stories as to why this was the case, like specific examples that show him doing things that many commanders might not do, but this one stuck out to me. On reading that one of the young staff officers on one of the ships had become a father, he sent him to London, which just so happened to be where his wife and baby were he was told to deliver some papers to the Admiralty. The man was told that he was expected to appear at the Admiralty to deliver the papers precisely eight hours after his train arrived in London. Angelico hoped that the man could find a way to spend those eight hours. These type of actions are great to read about. Even though for most of two years of war the British ships did little bit train, drill, and try to figure out a way to get the Germans to come out and face them, there were small bits of humanity in there. While the ships were idle much of the time, there was action up on the naval chain of command that revolved around tactics, strategy, and resource allocation. In late 1915 and early 1916, this final category, resource allocation, bubbled up to the top of the list, mostly revolving around the fate of the 5th Battle Squadron. By early 1916, all five ships of the 5th Battle Squadron had been assembled, and they were the brand new Queen Elizabeth class of super dreadnoughts, and they carried eight 15-inch guns each, bigger than anything the Germans had. They were undisputedly the finest battleships in the world. Even though Beatty had more battle cruisers than Hipper, it did not stop him from wanting the mo- wanting more ships. And what he really wanted were well, those was those five Queen Elizabeths of the Fifth Battle Squadron. Like that, probably more than doubles his fighting power. This was viable because the Fifth Battle Squadron could easily keep up with the battle cruisers. They had the same top speed, which was pretty impressive. Beatty requested these ships several times, but Jellicoe always shut him down. One of Jellicoe's concerns was that if Beatty was too strong, he would seek independent action against the Germans, which could then lead to disaster. Which I guess says a lot about what Jellicoe thought of Beatty. However, by mid-May, it became apparent that giving the ships to Beatty was the correct move. This change was because of several reasons. The first was the fact that the Lutzow had joined the High Seas Fleet, adding another battle cruiser to Hipper's command and cutting the British numerical advantage. Second, on April 22nd, the New Zealand and Australia collided, putting both of them out of action for some time. Finally, in the actions of early 1916, the battle cruisers had not exactly set the world on fire with their gunnery. In fact, they had been abysmal. Beattie blamed this on the fact that his ships did not have a gun range near their anchorage in the Firth of Forth, in contrast to the excellent ranges they had up at Scapa Flow. Because of these three reasons, Jellicoe and Beattie came to an agreement, where the 5th Battle Squadron would be given to Beattie in exchange for a rotating squadron of battle cruisers that would go to Scapa Flow for a few weeks to work on their gunnery, before rotating back to Beattie, at which point more would be sent north to replace them. This would mean that on both sides, it was critical that these ships be integrated into their respective fleets in case of action. Jellicoe and Beatty were very different commanders, with very different command styles, and, and different expectations of the men under their command. And it was essential that all of this be properly communicated to the ships that were under each Admiral's command at any given time. But neither would do this very well. Beatty was probably worse at it, though. In the ten days that the 5th Battle Squadron was with Beatty before Jutland, he did not once meet with their commander, Admiral Evan Thomas to discuss tactics or Beattie's style of command or what was expected of the 5th Battle Squadron. This would be important during the battle, because of how different Jellicoe and Beattie were, and how Evan Thomas interacted with these differences. So log that fact away, that I just said all those things, because it will come back later, and it would also almost have disastrous consequences. Back to the idea of the British drawing the Germans out. While the Germans had been trying to figure out a way to engage the British fleet with an advantage, the British were just trying to get the Germans out from behind their protective minefields, somehow, some way. The British were in a good situation, but there was far more to think of than just slowly winning the war by strangulation. The British navy was built on a legacy of bold actions, and there had been very few of those during this war. The Royal Navy yearned for another Trafalgar, for another chance to charge into the enemy guns blazing. And while this is easy to understand in the more aggressive commanders like Beattie, even Jellicoe and the other admirals like him were frustrated. There was a constant stream of letters between London's Scapa Flow and the Firth of Forth, proposing various offensive possibilities. At some point, everything probably made it onto the table, only to be vetoed by Jellicoe. This included really crazy ideas, like suicide rides of old battleships to clear way through the minefields, or mass destroyer attacks against the German fleet at anchor. Jellicoe was flat against anything that involved the Germans staying behind their protective minefields and the Royal Navy engaging through them. He would state that, quote, Until the high seas fleet emerges, emerges from its defenses, I regret to say that I do not see that any offensive against it is possible. It may be weakened by mines and submarine attack when out for exercises, but beyond that, no naval action against it seems practical. Jellicoe's three main requirements for action were to only fight in the North Sea, do not pursue the Germans through its defenses, and make sure the entire force of the Grand Fleet was ready and concentrated for action, just to allow the British to take advantage of the fact that, hey, they have more ships. While Scheer was getting ready for his bold move, Jellicoe was also planning one of his own that met all of his criteria, and he also planned to enact it at the beginning of June. His plan was to use a small group of British light cruisers sailing by Denmark and Sweden to pull the Germans out of their protection. This plan, while containing a reasonable chance of success, would never need to be enacted, because the news would be delivered to both Jellicoe and Beatty on May the 30th that the German ships were preparing to leave their ports on their way out into the North Sea. Jutland was coming.